Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Andrew Seeley. He's president of the Migration Policy Institute and former executive vice president of the Woodrow Wilson Center, where he founded and directed its Mexico Institute. For five years in the 1990s, he lived in a shantytown in Tijuana, Mexico, helping to start a community center and home for migrant youth. In the quarter century since, he has witnessed firsthand the dramatic transformation of this city, specifically in the country as a whole. His most recent book, Vanishing Frontiers, The Forces Driving Mexico and the United States Together, presents a clear, informative work that takes a sledgehammer to the boogeyman's unfounded fears. Here he chronicles the unstoppable transformations that have redefined the relationship between the two countries, a relationship that has made Mexico part of Americans' daily lives, even though that bond is not always visible on the surface. In Vanishing Frontiers, Seeley clearly shows the simple reality of the matter. The two nations who are already bonded together in a wide variety of ways are only becoming increasingly linked. To reverse this would fly in the face of long-standing trends, practicality, and common sense. I give you Andrew Seeley. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you. Now, we're you've written this fantastic book, Vanishing Frontiers, The Forces Driving Mexico and the United States Together. You have lived in Mexico uh, you have devoted a good portion of your adult life to informing people about the relationship between Mexico and the United States. In the cultural moment like this one, do you think, why didn't I become a game show host? Do you feel like you've moved the ball on dispelling ignorance about Mexico? <laughs> it hasn't worked. No, I actually, you know, the, the funny thing is, I think, it, and I say this in the book, but but I, you know, I had to actually think as I was writing the conclusion, you know, you, you get to a point at the end of a, a book, you know, I'm, I'm a couple years in here and we're in the middle of the new, you know, year into the Trump administration. And I thought, do I still believe that, that Mexico and the U.S. are getting closer? Is everything I've written in the past two years wrong? And and I started, I literally made a list one day. I remember sitting in a cafe going, you know, and, and decided, you know, we're actually, yeah, we're we're in a blip on the screen. I mean, we're in a moment of pulling apart, but we're a moment of pulling apart because Mexico is a bigger part of our lives. And, and that is part of the, the, the reaction against Mexico in a piece of the, the American public is because Mexico has become a big piece of who we are. Mexican immigrants trade with Mexico. I mean, this is actually, you know, Mexican culture. It, it, it is something that's in our lives in a way it wasn't 20 years ago. Um, and, and at some point we're going to have to really wrestle with it and deal with it. And we will as a country. Yeah. I, I feel like, is it fair to say the tone of your book it's, it's sort of a kind of complex optimism or, you know, or a hopeful optimism that recognizes the ongoing complexity of the relationship. Is that fair to say? I think that's exactly right. I, I worried at times that I was being a booster, but then I went back and reread it and realized I think I captured the complexity because I, we are moving forward in our relationship with Mexico. I mean, it, it is a big part of our lives, and I think it's generally been good for us, I mean, overall. But it's not – you know, not everything is good, right, for either side, right? And there, and these are two very different countries. There are two de- levels of development, um, two different state capacities, two different, you know, levels of violence in the countries. Um, and you, there's a lot of distrust that goes back. And, and so, yeah, it's good for us and it's good for Mexico. And overall, we'll, we'll come to terms with all these things. But 
but along the way, it's it's really challenging. And one of the stories that I found along the way that that uh, that I really liked was a story of a, a Mexican company that saved that came in and, and bought the largest nail company in the U.S. and saved it from extinction. But but the complex thing there, and it's a great story. We can talk more about that. I mean, it's a story about how Mexican public store, and, and I think it says a lot about why we've been good for each other economically. But and and here's the but is down the road from that factory in southeast Missouri, there was an air conditioning factory that had moved to Mexico. And, you know, I can tell you there was a net gain of jobs in that town anyway because of trade with Mexico and net gain of jobs is a good thing. But whether you like trade with Mexico depends whether you work in the nail factory, the air conditioning factory or your cousin works in the nail factory, the air conditioning factory. Right. And they're both true. Right. And so a lot of things, you know, I can say net, there's a lot of good for us in our relationship with Mexico, but it doesn't mean everyone has to see it the same way and same on the other side of the border. Yeah. And, and it's interesting, right? Because some of this is, is Steven Pinker wrote a, a piece in the New York Times a couple of months ago saying, look, this is the best time to be alive, despite the sort of apocalyptic tone of our politics and, and infotainment news that's, you know, on violence, health, wealth, you know, on basically every metric, life is exponentially better than it's been in world history. But the challenge, right, is, I guess, to translate that aggregate gain to particulars because there are a lot of people, your your book is full of evidence that this relationship is good and increasingly better for both countries as, as these, as they become more interdependent. And yet the, the, the people, for instance, you, you talk in the book about how inequality is a problem for both Mexico and the United States. And while even though our economic inequality has, has, has actually increased more rapidly than theirs, there's still a lot of people in real serious poverty in Mexico. And if you're in the Rust Belt or if you're impoverished in Mexico, this sort of populism that, that really is, is pessimistic about this relationship, that starts to make sense, right? I, I think it does. You know, I mean, and the fact that, you know, Stephen, I love Stephen Picker and, and, and uh, I, I love what he writes and, you know, it, it, I think he's right, right? We're at a better time than we've ever been. And that doesn't help you if you're living in a town in Syria that's been bombed, right? I mean, that, you know, then then things have never been worse. And, and, and we all experience these changes in different ways. And that's really true with Mexico, right? And, and it, the thing that's hard, I think, in our politics is teasing out what's really about Mexico and what's really about us. And, and you know, I, if you worked in the air conditioning plant in Poplar Bluff, Missouri, it's about Mexico. I mean, there's no question that 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 plant moved most of its workers to Mexico. You, there is a real culprit there. And if you're in, a, if you worked in a Mexican company, this happens on both sides. If you worked in a Mexican company that got put out of business because a bigger U.S. firm came in, transnational firm came in, you know, you're not going to like the United States either. I mean, there there are people who live that. But if you're in a, you know, an industry that downsized workers because it added machines, it's sometimes, or or it's hard to tell, right? Or or you know, an industry that's producing as many goods as it ever did, but it's but it's letting workers go. Is that machines? Is it trade? Is it, you know, what, what's the, is it immigration? I mean, it's hard to tell what the culprit is. It's probably machines most likely, but you know, it could be trade. It could be immigration. You know, you're, you're not really sure what the culprit is. And I think, I think there's both the rational concerns about, about some of the problems that still exist in our relationship with Mexico. And then there's the symbolism that populists have, have given us, right? As a simple recipe. It's a lot easier to say that you lost your job because of NAFTA than you lost it because of a machine, Right. Or your problem is immigrants rather than your problem is the changing nature of work. You know, that, that it, they're just more tangible things. And so some of the concerns people have about Mexico are really legitimate. I mean, you know, there are and some of the concerns Mexicans have about the U.S. They're really legitimate concerns. And some of them are just, you know, made up as a proxy for things we're worrying about, you know, and that we need to deal with in, in our own context. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing that 
struck me about your book. It seems like you're kind of arguing that the, that the kinds of conversations we're having in our politics, which are, you know, in the current moment, I mean, the past week with, you know, detention centers and separating asylum seekers from their children and these things, that these are not actually, the, the, hot, the hot button issues that get the energy are not actually the, the issues of most critical concern. I mean, of course, these are concerned because of the humanitarian, you know, immorality, but, but these are not the, the issues that are, are going to shape the ongoing relationship that's evolving and and it's going to keep evolving. I mean, it's it's hard it's hard to imagine it going the other way just because of all the interdependence, right? It's it's complex public policy issues that politicians aren't talking about, right? It, it, it's just sort of it, there's kind of all these issues that are used politically to club the other side uh, rather than actually engage in the kind of nuanced discussion that you do in your book. <laughs> Yeah, no, and I think you know one of the things is some of these issues are proxies for other debates, you know, and and I've it's my it's a Mexico book, but I don't know it's a, it's a book about the United States actually. It's about a, the book is about the United States and how we engage with Mexico and Mexicans. It's really about us rather than about. I've written books about Mexico. This is a book about us actually, and and, and just to take the case you raised, I mean, what happened this week with family separations at the border. You know, my take on that is in some ways that's a story not about the migrants. It's a story about us in this country. It started as that. I mean, obviously, it is the story of suffering of families. And and, I mean, we don't want to lose that. I mean, it it is a story about that. But there was not a crisis at the border. We're we're at very low levels of migration across the border. Reasonable people can disagree about how we should handle it. I actually think we probably need more border control, you know, not massive amounts. But over time, you know, we should control our borders and we can do it gradually. We've been doing it gradually for the past past 15 or 20 years, and we can keep moving gradually. But we suddenly made it a crisis. I mean, our president made it a crisis and decided that, that somehow these families were threatening the American way of life. And I suspect that that debate was less about the Central Americans themselves than it was about us and about Americans who are afraid either of demographic change and and see lots of things happen, even though we don't actually have that much immigration right now. We certainly don't have a lot of legal immigration, but but even legal immigration has been on a steady state for a long time. Yeah, and Mexican um, immigration, too, is at an all, a big low, right? Largely because of NAFTA, right? I mean, because of so much economic prosperity through NAFTA, a lot of Mexicans would rather stay in Mexico, where there's, especially if you're middle class, you're part of the skilled labor force. Being skilled, a skilled worker in Mexico, it's, it's a pretty good season in Mexican life, right? Yeah, I mean, people are preferring to stay in Mexico now and stay with their families, and they have a decent quality of life. Yes, they could live better in the U.S., but 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 living better undocumented in the U.S. versus living with your family fully documented in Mexico is is you know most people are choosing to stay in Mexico these days, um, and which is surprising. I mean, this is the you know we have almost we have very little illegal immigration and undocumented immigration from Mexico these days, and we have lots of Americans moving to Mexico. I mean, it's this sort of strange, you know, change in the picture that we always knew. And what we have left is some Central American immigration, some people that overstay their visas. There's still a few Mexicans, many fewer than Central Americans, but there still are a few Mexicans that come across, although there are more that leave. Um, so it's a little bit of that. And somehow we made this a crisis, and I suspect we made it a crisis not because it was a real crisis, but because – it was a proxy for other fears that we have in our country and it, politicians on both sides. I mean, this was Donald Trump's crisis, but but Democrats make their own crises, um, you know, with Mexico and 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 with other countries. You know, sometimes we make crises out of things to make political points that really have to do with ourselves. Yeah, because this seems like 
a really if, if someone read your book, I, I feel like a reasonable person on, on either side of the aisle that was not an ideologue but was concerned with with prosperity and public policy. It, it seems like this actually going forward should be one of the least cantankerous ideological things because we we all want economic prosperity. There there, I mean, we could dicker and argue about the particulars, but you know why not have things like you know you talk about this. Nine-year-old entrepreneur from San Diego who's this fit, kind of tall, charismatic guy. He's just like, it's just crazy how much costs we lose at the border for a truck idling hours. You know, like like every minute they're idling, the cost of goods are going up. It's all these things. It seems like we could, with the level of sort of uh, technical expertise of people like Amazon and all the sort of (laughs) all the things we have, it seems like we could really have. A, a secure but relatively porous border and and we could have guest workers and all sorts of things right that would benefit both sides of the border it, it would be really easy to fix some of these things if we didn't have these preconceptions i mean the san diego tijuana part where malin burnham the the uh the, the man who's a former sailing champion and the, the high, a hyper successful real estate hey, he's like the guy from the, from the uh, the most interesting man in the world he, he so, yeah. completely. <laughs> and, and i've known him for years i mean he, he really is i mean and, and you think he's much you think he's in his 60s when you see him i mean he's really impressive and he he is you know he's fit he's well-dressed He's eloquent. He's a Republican. I mean, you know, he's a Republican who really cares about the relationship with Mexico, which is a great thing in San Diego. The San Diego story with Tijuana. I lived in both cities back in the 90s, and they were really different cities. And and today they're really integrated. And so you've got Malin Burnham. You've got the the mayor of San Diego I interviewed for the book, who's a really smart guy named Kevin Faulkner, who's a conservative Republican also. You tell this this great story about him in the book where – right, like – because they they've built this airport like they, like Tijuana like San Diego need a bigger airport they're like why don't we just use the Tijuana airport they, like the, it's you a build great the, story I mean it's, and he's you said that he, the mayor said right like when Trump came to the border he's like I'm really looking forward to telling the president the great things we're doing with Tijuana <laughs> yes it was it was a great really subtle comment from one Republican to another you know Trump's coming to inspect the border wall and the mayor of San Diego conservative Republican says. I'm looking forward to meeting him later today and, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but, uh, you know, and, and tell him all the great things we're doing in Mexico. I mean, he is, you know, it, it's a pragmatic response. And the, the airport story is so good because, you know, San Diego spent years trying to figure out how to build a bigger airport. And they wanted to be the city of innovation and, and a global city that competes with L.A. and San Francisco. And they, they couldn't figure out how to expand the airport and they were built, where to build a new one. And and suddenly this idea had been there for a while, but but no one had taken it seriously. There was an actually Mellon Burnham. I don't write this in the book, but he actually played a role in this as well. A bunch of people did. That discovering that their answer was the the Tijuana Airport, which is on the border. It's a much larger airport. I mean, ironically, Tijuana had the bigger airport, the one with flights to Asia, and and all they had to do was build a bridge. Bridge and you you check into the Tijuana Airport as though you're in San Diego. You park in San Diego. You check in in English if you want or in Spanish. You cross the border bridge. You get a really quick immigration check and you're at your gate. And it's as though you're taking a flight from the United States, except you suddenly realize at some point that most people are speaking Spanish around you. You know, and it's it's this ingenious solution where they realize that they really were just one big metro area, and they now talk about each other as as a you know binational metro area. We're just one big metro region. Yeah, you say in the book that in like 2012 there was a study a poll. And only nine percent, I think, or seven or nine percent or something of Sandy San, residents of San Diego thought that their future was tied to Tijuana. And then, like three years later, it was seventy percent thought their future was. Tied. <laughs> That's amazing. 
<laughs> this is, I mean, it is a um, a real quick turnaround, and and of course, I mean, things with real quick turnarounds is that things can go the other direction, right? And so you have to you know have to worry that that you know, sort of because a terrorist incident, right? Or or an attempt to build a border wall that offends Mexicans, or you know, there anything that could happen that that one side or the other begins to see the other side as a threat. But but they really went from like being distant cities to recognizing how how close they were. And a lot of this was the you know the business community, non governmental organizations, the universities, the museums, and political leaders starting to just talk about how connected they were. And the border bridge really, the, the airport bridge played a huge role because that's it's just such a great visual. I mean, it's this sort of modern looking bridge that goes over the the border fence. And if, if you want sort of a representation of of something that links two cities together and says we're just one big city, the same way actually, if, you know, Copenhagen, my mother was Danish, actually, and, you know, Copenhagen and Malmö, Sweden are, are right next to each other. And I remember them being really distant cities. They, they eventually built a bridge between them and they've become a giant binational metro area, actually. It's, it's the other one I had in my mind when I was thinking about Tijuana and San Diego. You know, but that bridge that connected them, this modern bridge, was the symbol that said we really are one metro region. That bridge for, for people in San Diego and Tijuana was the sign that said, you know, we're actually in this together. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because San Diego is this is this great picture of this emerging global you know, cooperation. The other, the more complex picture that you begin the book with is Hazleton, Pennsylvania, and the story of Demetrio Juarez, who's Juarez, who's a successful restaurateur, entrepreneur uh, in Hazleton. It's seen a lot of immigration. It was it voted for Obama twice, right? And then there were some violent incidences between uh, teens, and 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 there's some street crime kind of things, and it becomes. That one of the controversial lightning rod places that has some sort of anti-immigrant local legislation. And then it goes around and, and after going twice for Obama, it goes overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. It, it, it's a really complex town. And, and Hazleton really was back in 2006. It was the first uh, local jurisdiction that passed legislation that said you had to be legally in the country and prove you were legally in the country to get a job, to be hired by a local employer or to even to rent a, an apartment or a house. And it, those that got out of return, but it really became the bellwether for part of the United States that was beginning to turn against immigration. And, you know, Lou Dobbs came, camped out and, and uh, for for days and weeks in Hazleton, as did other, you know, other journalists. It, it was it was a it was put on the map by the immigration fight. And and then yet you have people like Demetrio Juarez who who come through this, who feels very much part of Hazleton. He's a Mexican immigrant, but who has raised his three kids there. All his kids have been, you know, born and raised in in and around Hazleton, and and is sort of the exemplary, sort of the example of of the new Hazleton of of people who are you know Latino immigrants and children of of Latino immigrants who are you know, just as passionate about the city as anyone else. And and the story in Hazleton, I mean, there, there's a there's sort of the Demetrio story also about why the rest of his family doesn't migrate, because he ends up, you know, helping put five of his six brothers and sisters through college. They're all very successful professionals in, in his hometown in Mexico. And a lot of them live in this small town. I, I've been there with him. I mean, it's a it's a it's a tiny town in Mexico, but they go out to the cities and they work in the cities and they have great jobs. And because he migrated, he sent money back. They didn't have to migrate. But there's also the story about, you know, how Hazleton really begins to to come to terms slowly with immigration, reluctantly. You know, the vote for Trump is sort of that vote of maybe we can turn this thing around, even though that you can't anymore. And and then sort of the discovery also that four of the biggest employers in and around Hazleton are Mexican companies, which is a, a real shift. I mean, four of the, the biggest companies that are hiring American workers turn out to be Mexican owned. 
the company that uh, the company that you know you couldn't have church potlucks without you know, Entenmann's. You know, you have these little like you know, there's I love those little raspberry uh, coffee cakes. You know, I mean, this is it's a Mexican company. It's a Mexican company. I mean, this is you know, Bimbo, which is you know, awful name for marketing in the U.S., right? But it was Bambino from from Italian. Bimbo is the largest bread maker in the world, but we've never heard of them. I mean, unless you're Mexican, you've probably never heard of Bimbo before because they they don't you know they use the brand names that they've acquired through the years, and so it's Enemans and Sara Lee and Oroweed and Stroman's Amish uh, Amish bread, not so Amish. Thomas English muffins, not so English anymore. <laughs> you know, this is. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's really quite something. I mean, this is, you know, stuff that we have on our, our, our dinner plate, you know, Barres hot dogs are owned by another Mexican company. Semex is this big cement producer, our second biggest cement producer. I mean, all this stuff we take for granted, the biggest nail company in the United States. I mean, you know, nails that keep our, you know, you and I would be sitting outside having this conversation and, and uh, if it weren't for nails, right. And biggest nail American nail we take for granted turns out Mexican companies are behind them. And, and we're not surprised that American companies do this around the world, right? If you go to Mexico, you'll, you'll see American companies everywhere, right? And American products everywhere. We know what they are. But none of us in the U.S. I mean, I was surprised when I started looking at this, the number of things that are actually owned by Mexican companies. It's It's been this new trend in the past 10 or 12 years. And yeah, you know, Donald Trump always talks about the bad deals. We've got bad deals everywhere. But it's interesting because you point out, actually, there we do have Mexico, we do have a, a, a little bit of a trade imbalance. Like they have an advantage on things like industrial goods, but we've got advantages on agriculture and other tech stuff and, and services. So we're actually, you know, getting a pretty good deal here at both on both sides of our border. I mean, it's actually, this is really advantageous to, to us as a whole. Yeah. And Mexico is our second biggest export market after Canada. I mean, actually, we depend a third of our trade a lot. But you know, one of the, the secrets of NAFTA, we, you know, we keep talking about it as a trade agreement, and I do all the time too because it is. I mean, it's, it is a the North American free trade agreement, but but more than trade, it's really a, a joint manufacturing agreement. And so, and I don't think anyone predicted this at the outset, but it's ended up being as much about you know workers in the three countries of North America, Canada, Mexico, the U.S., making things together. And so about half of what we call trade, about half of it's real trade, about half of it is soybeans from North Dakota going to Mexico or strawberries from Baja California coming up to California. I mean, that's about half of it. But the other half is stuff we make together. It's it's auto parts going back and forth across the borders. We're building a car, you know, or steel coming from Mexico to make nails in Missouri or, you know, airplane parts being made in Puebla, Mexico that are going to come up and be assembled in Seattle. You know, these are these are the things we're doing. And we call it trade because, you know, technically we're moving things within the same industry. But a lot of it's we actually created this common integrated, you know, platform, manufacturing platform in North America. And it's made us really competitive against the world. It's one of the reasons America actually produces more goods than we ever have before and manufactured goods. Um, even though we're been shedding workers, we've produced lots and lots of goods. Um, because we became really competitive. Unfortunately, we're you know also mechanizing a lot of this. So I mean that's why fewer and fewer workers. But but it turns out that you know we thought American manufacturing was dead. It did really well because we we did the same things the Europeans did with the European Union. We created our own you know North American Union. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If 
if the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. And doesn't it seem like this is a relationship we want to invest more in, especially if we think of, of a competitor that, that is, in some sense, value-wise and economically-wise, like China, a, a, a real, I mean, a complex, uh, we have a complex relationship with China. It seems like a relationship with Mexico really, I mean, you have a whole chapter uh, in the book, to, uh, you know, there's not going to be American energy independence, but there is a possibility for North American energy independence, where we actually could... Uh, have a sense of secure energy just in North America with Mexico and Canada and the United States. Yeah, I, and that's a surprising story because, you know, back when when, when NAFTA was negotiated, Mexicans would not talk about energy. Energy was, you know, like the Social Security system for us. It was their third rail, and, and they didn't want to to have any American investment in the energy industry and didn't want to talk about it. It was off the table. And and now today, actually, Mexico has, has private, public, public-private, um, investment in uh, in energy, and it turns out Mexico is our by far and away our biggest uh, market for natural gas. We produce more natural gas than we can use in the United States, and so Mexico has has managed to keep the price up a little bit as as by taking it um, some of it off our hands, which has helped them actually upgrade their electricity, make electricity cheaper and a lot greener than it once was. Um, so really helpful for them, and and they're our fourth biggest supplier of oil. So it, you know, it turns out if if we keep going the way we're going, we actually could be energy inter- interdependent, depending who you believe. You know, sometime in the next you know six, seven. Well, some people didn't say you know next year, but I think at this point we're probably looking at the next four or five, six years. You could really talk about energy interdependence. And that doesn't mean we stop buying from Saudi Arabia or from Venezuela, but you know, if there were a shock, if suddenly the 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 supply was cut off from somewhere in the world, we actually are in pretty good shape just with our neighbors. You tell a really interesting story in the book where after Katrina, Vicente Fox wanted to send troops and supplies and things to help. He was just very moved by by the human suffering and that the ambassador in Mexico City is scrambling because it, they would already... I, I mean, this is fascinating stuff. I, we had already turned away a German plane with like 15 tons of food because the, the bureaucratic checks weren't done the right way. And so, but they're thinking, look, we've had this like sort of tense security relationship for decades. And this is the Kodak moment we want. And, and, and it was, 
and it and they actually got it to come together and actually change the tone of of, of security cooperation between our two countries. It's a great story. It's one of my wife's favorite stories. The book, actually, I mean, it, 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 because it's so you know, it, it it tells you so much about how 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 the two countries saw each other at one point. I mean, there was almost no military to military relationship except for really formal things here and there. But Mexican military distrusted the U.S. They continued to to you know train their uh, soldiers to repel an invasion from the United States. I mean, it was one of the biggest sort of threats that, that the Mexican military trained on was how to repel American invaders. You know, and so they, they, their thought of actually collaborating with us was not going to happen. And and in general security, we started to have this organized crime problem, drug trafficking, and and yet we weren't really – and President Fox wanted to send aid. And he just decides to do it because that's how Mexicans sometimes do things, right? You're just going to get things done. And if the president wants to get it done, it will happen. And, of course, our government doesn't work that way. There's six million veto points. And somehow in 24 hours, I mean, the, the call, the, the guy in charge of the embassy gets the call, the U.S. embassy in Mexico, and, and finds out the troops are on their way actually to the, the border already. He's like, are we going to turn them away, right? I mean, is this this is our moment to really – you know, turn things around. And sure enough, they managed to push this, thanks largely to the Pentagon. They pushed this through um, in 24 hours and the Mexican troops get to the border. One last thing, I can't remember if I put this in the book or not, but the there was the one thing that they knew was going to be a problem is that the Mexican meat coming across was not going to pass inspection. And the the uh, from what I've been told, the, it was the uh, person in charge of the border crossing says, look, we're not going to inspect the meat. We'll inspect the meat in San Antonio. We'll send the USDA inspectors up, but we're not going to do it right as people are coming across because we don't want, you know, we don't want pictures of the meat being thrown out. And they do it. Actually, they get to San Antonio. They actually inspect the meat. It has to be returned or thrown out. And it turns out a, a, a group of local companies donate the meat instead. And the Mexican military, the Mexican army, and then later the Navy comes up with a ship, end up being you know, important. Uh, you know, not not the largest uh, part of Katrina rescue, but they but they end up giving you know food and medical treatment to a large number of Americans, and it really in a relationship where the Mexicans have always felt inferior, and the Americans have always felt more important. This sort of flips the the script a little bit, and and it becomes a real breakthrough, particularly in security relations. And the Mexican military says, "Look, that was you know this was a good experience for us. We can actually talk to our counterparts over there," and it, it changes the tenor. There, there's an election coming up in Mexico, and I mean, in your book, you talk about how the one thing that really could, I mean, could at least curb the flow. I mean, it's probably not going to stop the the growing interdependent relationship and the vanishing of 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 the the metaphorical vanishing of borders, but it could impair it as if NAFTA it, it falls apart. And I mean, here we have a, a sort of nationalist populist in Donald Trump, and we have. Um, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, right? Uh, he who is a kind of left wing nationalist populist. I, I mean, is that a recipe for disaster if he would win? You know, he, he versus you know the, the kind of chemistry that could it, it erupt between he and President Trump. I mean, it, it could be. I, I think it's the one big warning sign, and and I think well, and I think the NAFTA negotiations are a big warning sign. So I think there are a lot of things that could. It, if not turn things back, at least really slow momentum and at least make some parts of the relationship a lot more difficult. I mean, in some ways, Trump and Lopez Obrador are similar personalities. The, the Economist, I think, has Lopez Obrador on the cover this week as as Mexico's Trump. Uh, I wouldn't go quite that far, but, you know, they both are strong-willed people from outside the system. Donald Trump came in and took over the Republican Party against the establishment and made it his. Lopez Obrador broke away from the left of the left-wing party in Mexico, created his own party 
and and basically decimated his old party and you know brought them all with him and and has this party that emerged out of you know four years ago didn't exist and may win a majority in congress now i mean you know in many ways these are outsiders who through force of will and personality and ignoring everyone else's advice are are taking over the the, the country their political system they're similar i mean they're populists they're they're speaking to fears that people have for good or bad i mean so those fears may be legitimate some some less so but you know they're they're similar in that and yet the thing that I think may be different, and, and, and sometimes that helps. I mean, it looks Donald Trump seems to get along well with with somewhat authoritarian personalities out there. So so they may really get along swimmingly. And yet the big difference, I think, is Lopez Obrador is, is a um, they're both men of the people in different ways. I mean, Donald Trump is an American version of a man of the people. He's the guy who watches, you know, wrestling and eats hamburgers, but lives in a mansion. Right. Or actually lives in a luxury condo. Um, you know, which is a different version. You know, Lopez Obrador is the Mexican version of the man of the people who doesn't care about money um, and really eats tacos and and loves to hang out in markets, but in fact lives very modestly. And and in some ways, I think they may run into the fact that they are they're the archetype for for each other's country's man of the people, but it's a different version, and they may not quite connect on that level. With you know, immigration being this sort of flashpoint issue right now i mean it seems like the the politics of immigration are sort of the ultimate form of blaming the victim right because we incentivize it economically because we do need a certain uh, migrant workforce you know participants to keep certain industries going and then we punish the people that come i mean what couldn't we saw if we really were not interested in this right if we had severe penalties on anybody that hired an undocumented worker and your business was confiscated or you went to jail i mean the incentives would stop overnight right but we incentivize it and then punish the people that come and take the incentive yeah it, it is right i mean we're focused on on the immigrants rather than than the whole system of what what's causing people to come but you know even with that we've seen fewer and fewer people coming um, frankly, from Mexico, I mean, we have we have almost no, uh, we have very little. I mean, almost no, but very little immigration, illegal immigration from Mexico. We have lots of legal immigration, but very little illegal immigration these days. People have decided to stay in Mexico for the most part. Um, and is, that, is that because if you're a sort of motivated worker? I mean, you talk about how when immigrants come into your community in general, the crime rate drops. I mean, they're much. I mean, they're hard. Most of the immigrants we get are incredibly hardworking people. So. Now it's like okay if I'm a if I'm a pretty hard working motivated person in Mexico I can actually do better here than starting at the bottom of the rung in the right. United States I can start in the I could be upper middle in the rung here like there's opportunities for me to to to, to pursue right. uh, you know economic growth yeah yeah because it's not that things are better in Mexico than the U S I mean you know on average Americans make four times as much money as Mexicans so you know yes you could make more money in the US but you know you'd be living in the shadows you'd worry about being deported you'd you know you'd worry about not speaking english so you know if, if you think you have a chance of making a good future for your kids you're likely to stay even if you know that you might make a little more money somewhere else and the people that are coming are the Central Americans, right? Because they don't know that, actually. And the other thing that happened, by the way, with this, I mean, one is the Mexican economy got better, but two, people like Demetrio Juarez started sending money home. Ireland and all sorts of places around the world, you know, 100 years ago, right? They used to send migrants. All it happened in Germany and, you know, Denmark and, you know, Sweden at some point. You know, these countries all sent people to the United States. And at some point, there was a generation that no longer needed to leave. And, and some of that was 
the the economy got better, and some of it was that people sent money home, and the next generation went to school and and had better opportunities, started a business, and you know had better opportunities. Um, but now we're seeing Central Americans come because they they really are dealing with a tougher situation. I mean, much higher rates of violence and a lot more poverty. And you know, it's hard how you figure out how you stem those flows because people are really motivated to leave, particularly with the violence. Um, and you know, we were doing pretty well for a while. We were slowly, gradually lowering the incentives for people to come, make it a little bit harder to cross the border until Donald Trump decided we had a national crisis on our hands. And then, and then we went into crisis mode. But but we were gradually, gradually actually, you know, trying to make it harder to come. And then, you know, hopefully you self-select the people that really have have real powerful reasons where it's around violence, around threats. And those are people we, we can we can and should receive. It's interesting that there are a number of people in the kind of commentary have pointed out that the major division now is between sort of the elite and, you know, the sort of college educated and advanced educated and those without that kind of education, particularly among uh, white Americans. And how, you know, Barack Obama was like the first person that seeded a big chunk of the non-educated white electorate and still and, and still won, you know, and, and that sort of Republicans are taking more and more of that share of the vote. I, as I'm reading your book, right, I thought I find it fascinating. It's interesting. It's it, it's you're a great writer. There's great journalistic stuff, great facts. But I'm part of this sort of geeky. I, I think this stuff is interesting. And I I, I see a lot of promise in, in these sort of you know, relationships and it's it's exciting and this these airports this airport summit that's so interesting right but i wonder is 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 part of the sort of imagined crisis or 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 create crisis really just us playing out our conflicts here between the educated elite, which is in both parties right i mean the, the people that are generally for this increased sort of nafta increased partnership are you know there's a bipartisan sort of consensus around that stuff among the elites right but it's 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 the sort of populist advocates that that where this is a, a real different view of this whole thing, right? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. It, 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 it's important to remember: like 49 percent of the population of the U.S. are 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 whites without college degrees, right? I mean, what we call the white working class. And you can slice it different ways, but but it's still half the country, right? I mean, this is is the largest. Yes, this is you know more Latinos than ever, a large African American population, a growing Asian American population. Um, you know, more people go to college among whites as well, you know, as, as well as among all other groups. So, you know, the other slices are growing faster, but it is still, you know, the core, what was sort of the cultural core of the United States at one point is the white working class, right? Now, the white working class in many cases, I mean, and you see this in Hazleton, um, the, the white working class feels increasingly threatened because Latinos have come in and started lots of businesses. And then you see the beginnings of people coming together. I mean, Hazelden for me is an optimistic story because you actually do see people coming together. Now, I'm not sure if you would say most people yet, but you do see lots of people beginning to build bridges. One, one of my favorite, I don't tell this story in the book, but it, but it was just a one of my last trips to Hazleton, I sat and listened to a conversation between a young white woman and an older Latina woman speaking – one speaking English and one speaking Spanish and clearly understanding each other. I was – we just happened to be in a in a cafe that they were in and you know saw this conversation going on going, wow, this is – you know this would not have happened 10 years ago in Hazleton or eight years ago when I started coming to Hazleton. I mean this was – you know the, the one woman sp- under, understood enough Spanish to follow the conversation. The other woman understood enough English and they clearly knew each other and liked each other. We're just having this back and forth bilingual conversation. I thought, wow, this is this is the future of Hazleton. But that's not necessarily where we are in this country. And, and I think that's because, you know, in Hazleton, the big fear is is obviously a huge demographic change over time. 
But it's also this displacement, right? I mean, it's this sense, it's displacement of culture. I mean, the white working class was once dominant in the United States. It's still half, but it's it's changing. It's work because I, the white working class has real concerns. And the whole working and African Americans and Latinos and Asian Americans. I mean, the whole working class has real concerns about the future of work in a way that people who are professionals don't, right? I mean, if you're if you're a computer programmer, globalization is a damn good thing. I mean, darn good thing. I mean, it is a really good thing for all of us. If you are if you have a PhD, if you have an MBA, I mean, globalization is you know has made your life so much better, right? And you can think about working around the world and working in different industries. That's not same thing you could be laid off at some point you know and and where it may be hard you may have to move or be retrained or there may be nothing you can do because the next yes there may be working class jobs but they're for younger people who are technologically savvy right and grew up with technology in a different if you're 55 years old you're not going to be able to program some of the machines necessarily right so i mean there, there is some real stuff here in you know some of its cultural fear and and i think you know my my story of the the two women in hazelden sort of but, you know, what I took away from that is, you know, there's, there's at least some part of, of the city where the cultural fear is abating and going away. And I think that will be taken care of in this country over time. It may take us a generation. But the world of work fear, the, the fear of, of you know, that we may be dividing into, you know, as I think you're suggesting, into two countries, one of which is people who really the, the global economy is their oyster. And one part of the country that is the other part of the country that that really is about where is the future. And that's not healthy, but it may be where we're headed, maybe where we are. Yeah, you know, Jonah Goldberg from the National Review has just written a book about sort of the future of Western democracy. And, and it, you know, he talks about how, you know, th this sort of European romantic response to this sort of enlightenment project and, and the globalizing forces that, that you know, that push back against people like Herder and people like you know, the German, you know, anthropologists. That, and he said, you know, on one level, you understand it because this sort of globalization, liberal, democratic, free, it's not natural, right? Because humans have evolved being tribal. And, and, and when it creates anxiety, sometimes it's almost like, is the, is the cultural fear, does it come out of the work fear? Does it come out of the, the economic anxiety? And because we're naturally tribal, you know, when, when things seem chaotic or when there's displacement, is it that, you know, you, you run to your tribe, right? Like, I mean, is that part of the complexity of the issue that, it's tribalism yeah. that stands in the way of, of facts, you know, and, and realities. Yeah. But and, and but as you say, I mean, tribalism runs both ways, right? I mean, tribalism exists in and of itself. Like someone comes in speaking a different language, putting on their their music, you know, that I don't understand louder than I like, and and carrying a different set of customs. And you know, I walk into the store, and yeah, it's the best closest door to me, but everyone speaks Spanish there or Chinese or, you know, those things generate a certain kind of tribalism, right? I mean, there's a sort of cultural touch, but, you know, in a land of plenty, you know, and, and, and this is part of what happens with, with, you know, white professionals and urban professionals, that becomes kind of cool because you may like it or not, but in the end, you associate that with a world of opportunities that are happening out there in a world that's generally where your income is going up and your future looks bright. If your future doesn't look bright, if it looks uncertain, and your world is changing around you as well, I think there is more incentive to 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 reach for the tribe. Which doesn't mean that you know wealthy and professional and well-educated people can't be just as tribal. But right now they're doing pretty well, right? There's less incentive. You can be a little more flexible when you're, you know, about the boundaries of your tribe. If if there's more to share, when there's less to share, you're you're not so sure you want to expand those boundaries. 
And and the other thing I think that plays in this is, you know, small towns and cities, urban areas are overall doing fairly well, not everyone equally, but but overall metro areas have been doing well in, in the United States. Smaller towns and cities, there are a few that have done very well, but but many of them are also of declining importance. And, and I remember in Hazleton, you know, one of the stories that people tell and is memorialized in books about Hazleton is it was the third city to get electric lights. It was a city that had a trolley that had a really hopping downtown area. That was immensely unequal. It was a mining city. And so, you know, lots of people, you know, were, were not actually hanging out in the clubs downtown because they were eating in the restaurants downtown because they couldn't afford it. People forget that part. But but there is this history of it being a place that mattered. Right. And this is true of so many cities and towns around the world. These were places that mattered and they may not matter as much, at least economically in, in the future. And some of them will. I, tell, I, I, Hazelden, I think, may actually be a place that gets back some of that shine over time. They're doing some creative things. But there are going to be a lot of these cities and towns that don't. And I think that's another element. You see this even with professionals in, in cities and towns. Being a professional in, in New York, you know, is or in Los Angeles, you know, globalization is a wonderful thing. But even if you're the leading architect or you run a business in a small city or town, still that sense of loss of place and importance, I think, matters. And, and it speaks to that tribal identity. You know, your tribe is being is being shunned by the world. If you had your druthers, if you could sort of influence Congress, you know, and could create some sort of bipartisan agreement or something, what's the thing that you think would be best that it would be that people would be reasonable policy wise that could really help the Mexican U.S. relationship? Like, what's the thing that's the no brainer? Here's what we could do that would really impact the relationship in a positive way. You know, I, I actually don't think the government could do much that would would impact the relationship. I mean, you know, I, I think you 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 save NAFTA and, you, you know, maybe revise NAFTA. There's some things that actually they put in the new NAFTA that's pretty good. So I think getting that through would be good. I think a sensible immigration policy would be immensely helpful. I mean, I you know, one that is both tough on 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 the border, but also is is generous in in bringing people in through legal channels and dealing with people that have been here for a long time that would win us a lot of points in in mexico but it would also be really good for our economy i mean i think there are things we could do that would matter but but i think in terms of a the future of the relationship the exciting stuff is happening outside government it's happening in in tech innovation and in film and in food and in border communities and local governments and i think that's where the drive so you could just get all the all of Congress to take the Hippocratic oath. First thing, I will do no harm. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. I, I almost wish more than government doing anything. I mean, I, I really do wish they would fix our immigration laws, and and that could be a long conversation. But but I think we we need that in our own national interest, and and it would also help our relationship with our neighbors. But um, and and we certainly should should do something, you know, with the the new negotiated NAFTA if it ever if it ever finishes. But. But I think it mostly is about letting things happen as they will and, and being respectful to each other and, and letting people be creative. Andrew, thanks for coming on the podcast. And I'll tell you, if people want to understand these issues, there's no better place than to start with your book, Vanishing Frontiers. I, I enjoyed it immensely. It's a great book. Thanks. Thanks so much. It was great being with you, actually. This was a lot of fun and, and uh, look forward to touching base in the future. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, Please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. 
Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Andrew for coming on the podcast. Please do check out his book, Vanishing Frontiers. It's a great book on a timely topic, and it's a great read. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, bear thee well.